0: In the worlds of Doctor Who for May 2nd, racist aristocrats in Regency London find themselves skating on thin ice, and we look at both the plot and the message of Sarah Dollard's episode. Glenn Weldon from Pop Culture Happy Hour talks about Doctor Who's place in American nerd culture. Plus, the two-minute Time Lord returns on This Week in Time Travel.
1: Welcome to this week in time travel. I'm Chip. I'm Melissa. Hey guys, we survived the invasion of the Warren Fries.
0: We did, and my or actually, ears-
1: I did. You came, you skated by completely unscathed. It was me and Rachel that had to deal with that.
0: I mean, I nearly hit my head in the bathroom laughing listening to him later when he went on that incredibly epic, wonderful, and well-deserved rant. Can we just have him on like every episode to talk about the latest statistics crisis and calm us all down by riling us all up?
1: People have suggested that we should have him on every week to do this. I'm concerned about how this would affect intra-podcast relations with Radio Free Scarrow. There might even be some CanCon violations here involved. So I'd say let's talk real quick about the ratings for Thin Ice, and after Warren, that's as much as we dare talk about stats for a while, okay?
0: All right. On your own head be it.
1: Thin Ice came in with unofficial overnight numbers of 3.76 million viewers, a share of 20.4% of the total TV audience in the UK. And that, my friends, is that. No more.
0: Sorry, I'm just waiting to see if, like, a wave of rage comes down from Canada. Like, I'm just holding on to my seat here, waiting to see. But in slightly happier news... Our friends at the Verity podcast invaded the Incomparable Network's flashcast for thin ice. Liz Miles and Erica Ensign joined for a squee-filled podcast.
1: I'm quite sure. And uh, it's nice that Jason gives them outlets when they're going to be missing a given episode of Verity. Uh, (laughs) And finally, in the news for the week, which wasn't a Big news week, but the BBC has posted a special binaural audio preview for next week's episode. Knock, knock. Binaural recording is a really intricate way of basically faking surround sound. And after the episode airs, there's going to be a special version on the BBC iPlayer that if you happen to have headphones it's supposedly going to sound a lot more immersive and creepy and stuff. I am unaware if BBC America will get this in any capacity or whatever, but there is a YouTube uh, sampler and it's kind of cool.
0: It's really, really cool. Like, uh, it reminds me of the, do you remember that Dalek ASMR video that went around? (laughs) Like, it reminds me a little bit of that. It's like the, it's like, BBC going, okay, we're going to take this audio format, Uh, it's going to be really immersive, and then we are going to freak you the hell out with it.
1: Uh, Well, uh, I'm not sure how many people are going to get the full effect of this, because this won't be going out over normal television, and it's useless if you're not wearing headphones, but... um
0: But it's a kind of nice nod to the fact that a lot of the audience is watching it later as a catch-up on iPlayer. So it's a nice way of making it kind of interesting for them.
1: Do you mean that there may be people who will forego it and won't contribute to the overnight ratings because they are going to do this on the iPlayer with the headphones? Is this going to affect the stats? Warren, we will need you next week after all.
0: Okay, I stu- still do not see a wave of outrage from the general direction of Canada, so I think we're okay.
1: Um, maybe. Maybe. Well, hey, I'm listen- more
0: north than you are. If it comes, it'll come for me first.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I gotta remember that for the future. Hey, so Sarah Dollard had an episode this week.
0: Yay, she did, and it was amazing, and I loved it. Did you watch her on the after show?
1: I did not tell me what you heard.
0: Okay, so first off, you need to go and watch the after show right now because it is the most adorable flipping thing ever. Uh, Haley Neubauer, who does costumes for Doctor Who, brought Crystal D, her own costume. It was on her birthday. And Crystal is just absolutely filled with squee and delight and it's the most adorable thing I've ever seen. And they all got together for this really wonderful conversation about Thin Ice and how Sarah thought about the story uh, and thought about the political messages that were going to be in it and how to build the relationship between Bill and the Doctor in this. And really make it uh, a development of their early relationship Uh, so you should absolutely go and watch it it's great she also does a really great plug saying that there should be women working in every single department of the BBC that works to produce Doctor Who Uh, she is also over-the-moon excited to have Rona Monroe writing an episode this season Uh, and I'm just fangirling a little bit with
1: her I can hear that well listen why don't I go and watch that video right now since I think you've got some folks coming over to talk about the episode.
0: We do. Sorry to kick you out, Chip, but we got conversations to be had.
1: Bye-bye.
0: All right, and we're back with our panel discussion of Episode 3 of Series 10, Thin Ice. Joining us for this panel today uh, is Tom Atta, our recurring panel guest. Thank you so much for joining us. Aight. And joining us for the first time, uh, we have Joy Piedmont, who's a librarian, frequent podcaster, and also is joining us after just having completed her trapeze class. So Joy, please take your act up for the Frost Fair uh, and show us what you got. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. (laughs) Frost Fair is up next. (laughs) So we have a lot to talk about uh, for Thin Ice. I personally really enjoyed this episode. Um, I thought everything from the plot to the setting to the message was fantastic. What did you guys think of Sarah Dollard's latest outing with Doctor Who? I have so many
2: thoughts about this episode, and most of them are really just kind of like astonishment still, because I, I can't believe how much... Sarah Dollard packed into this episode in terms of themes and characterization and the story was so fun. So right now I'm still a little like overwhelmed just with f- dealing with like kind of all the thoughts. I mean, they're the Doctor Who episodes where you watch it and you love it and like you squeeze the entire way through. And for me, this was actually like me just sitting and watching and thinking like, I, I don't even know if I'm, going to be able to process all of this within the next few days. Because <laughs> it's just, I, I loved it, but it's also like just given me so much to think about.
3: Okay. So what, what sort of things does it give you to think about? I mean, what, what, was your, what were your first impressions?
2: So my first impression personally was just um, how they are really on a roll in terms of developing the relationship between Bill and the doctor. And one thing that I actually loved so much is this was the episode where it hit me oh, they can banter in this really snappy, zippy way because they've known each other for so long. And so we've completely... Um, bypassed that awkward period of the doctor and the companion just getting to know each other, the companion not really being able to push back so much because he or she doesn't know the doctor too well. And here we've done all that, and it's happened off screen. And they have this really, really fun relationship where they tell inside jokes to each other. And, I mean, the whole bit with Pete, the the (laughs) friend who was there, and then not. I mean, it just... The way that they look at each other, they looked like real friends, and it was so natural and just, just beautiful. Um, how about you, Tom?
3: Okay, I'm agreeing with you. Um, one of one of the things I really liked about yesterday was that I've said it before, and I will say it again: the character of Bill seems to have a sense of wonder about what's happening to her. The TARDIS yes. isn't a the TARDIS isn't a bus. The Doctor's not a bus driver. That's a time mm. machine, and he's a Time Lord. I've got to say, she's instantly likable as well. I mean, this is not to complain about. Um, the, the previous companion actor, actors, um, but actually to complain about the characters of Clara and Amy. Uh, what I liked about Pearl Mackey was that, she, uh, sorry, the character of Bill, was that she was asking questions and acting, acting properly. Um, so suddenly there's this guy and she realises how dangerous he is. How many people have you seen die? And how long was it before you stopped caring? How many people mm. have you killed? And how long was it before you stopped caring? And not just, answer, not just asking the questions in a kind of throwaway way, actually acting like it mattered absolutely wonderful stuff there um to be fair if if this whole season is meant to be like a relaunch for doctor who as as an idea or as a series it's working really really well Um, This is one of the stories, I think, alongside An Unearthly Child or Pyramids of Mars, I would show to someone to say, this is what Doctor Who's about. Um, Because I don't don't know what's taken so long. Three years for the Doctor to be likeable. Three years for (laughs) a companion to be, um, again, again, for for that dynamic to be absolutely right. Um, I love the idea that um, uh, the Doctor is waiting for an order from humanity, because otherwise he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, all, all I can say is, I've waited nearly 10 years for... Um, Doctor Who to become Doctor Who again, or at least to be full of things that I recognize as being Doctor Who. I'm not saying that the last 10 years has been wrong or bad. I've really enjoyed it. You know, I'm on record. This is just
0: your type of Doctor Who.
3: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I couldn't have told you, I couldn't say this is what leads to being Doctor Who for it to, to be pleasing to me. But mm-hmm. when I see it, I know it and I saw it last night and I loved it.
0: And when I was thinking about what episode this reminded me of, I was actually thinking a lot about The Unquiet Dead. You know, because you have Rose's first sort of voluntary adventure with the doctors going into the future and then they're going into the past and there's very deliberate continuity references in that Mm -hmm. uh, the Doctor gives Bill the same directions to get to the wardrobe that he gives Rose um, to give but there's also sort of a thematic similarity in that going to the future is a lot about the companion's anxiety with Mm -hmm. humanity and where they end up and then they go in the past and they have that values conflict both with the values of the time period and with the Doctor And you have Mm. that kind of similar argument taking place between Bill and the 12th Doctor that takes place between Nine um, and Rose when they're discussing morality of what is the right thing to do in this situation? What values are we each uh, going to champion at this moment? Do you,
3: do you know, as you say that, there's a little line that's, or, or a little exchange that just pops into my head. I mean, there were some great little exchanges, but my favorite one was um, uh, Bill being a little bit like uh, Martha going, oh, you know, if you step on a butterfly, then you change the world. Um, and I, I think the line is something like, well, whatever I do is going to have a huge effect on the, re- the course of the rest of my life. And the response is, yeah, like every other day of your life. Get used mm-hmm, to it. On the go. Right.
0: I, I think uh, we were going to hold off on this and have this conversation later, but we're leaning into that topic now, so let's do it. Uh, race and racism in this episode. Oh, yeah. I felt, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's sort of like a retreading of that conversation with Martha the first time she goes back in time of mm. and what's it going to be like for a black woman to be walking the streets of historical London. Um, personally, I felt that. This episode approached that conversation a lot more respectfully than did the Shakespeare code. Joy, you've been on a lot of the color separation overlay panels. What did you think of this?
2: So the most recent um, conversation that I've had about uh, race and Doctor Who, you know, we've just been referencing that particular scene with Martha so often. And I kind of had this working theory like, well you know, the doctor is just so obnoxious to Martha in that moment saying like, oh, well, just do what I do. Right. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, like I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and think like, well, maybe the doctor just doesn't see race and like he just doesn't understand it. And I kind of love that Sarah Dollar just completely blew up my theory because it's completely worth it to have that scene where he looks at her and he says, oh, you're right. Like this is a dangerous situation for you to be in. And opens it up to say like yeah every situation we're in is dangerous and and says like okay go find something to wear and acknowledges like maybe you should blend in like let's not walk around as though no one's gonna notice us you know dressed in funny clothes and he does what he can to make the situation safer for her and that's so consistent with how he's been um for the past few episodes but it's also just a really nice acknowledgement that this woman has legitimate concerns about her safety in the past and the doctor says yes you're right that could be a problem and really like it's just it's so little but it was so important
3: look i think you're right the the whitewashing thing the actual explicit Um, idea of um, whitewashing and that lovely line which is just guaranteed to upset somebody somewhere about Jesus being black. I love that. That's (laughs) fantastic.
0: (laughs) Oh, oh, it it did upset people on Twitter. It was great.
3: Uh. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So you're saying a man from a hot country may not be lily white. What a shame. Yes. Um, But but, but again, you're you're right. What's Doctor Who for? What's entertainment for? What's what's popular culture for if it's not for um, generating a space in which these contentious issues which shouldn't really be contentious. Let's be fair, um, can be discussed. What, be, you know, what, what better way to have children asking questions? I mean, there are, you know, there were people who were, um, who were Noel Clark was cast, had a real problem with someone black being cast in Doctor Who. So of course, the show casts free Maguman. <laughs> you know, um, and you know, and similarly, there were people who had a real lowdown problem with. Um, Paul Mackie being cast but you know what fine this is what this is what I think my show is for it's not my show but this is the show I choose to champion this is what it's for it's for inspiring people Mm -hmm. it's for asking questions it's about um, making people who maybe haven't explained this feel uncomfortable you know but to be honest (laughs) with you if you're a racist and you're watching Doctor Who you're on the wrong show really Right. Um,
0: <laughs> this was the argument that was taking place on Twitter. Of you know, someone yeah. was was very upset because he was saying, you know, social justice warriors have taken over my show, and I'm just sitting there going, "Have you been watching this show? Like, yes. it's been pretty oh. clear about its agenda since the early days."
3: Can, can I can I make my can I, can I make my vaguely political statement? Um, Go for it. I'm, all right, I'm a black man from the 1970s. I recently got my PhD. I am Dr. Tom Atter. I am Dr. Tom Atter in the face of a lot of very silly people who told me I was stupid and I was wrong. And and I think back to a TV show with a curly-haired weirdo who wandered around forgiving people their stupidity and proceeding nonetheless. This is one of the things that inspired me to become a doctor. So do you know what? If this show is actually showing children, showing children or anyone that they don't have to, don't have to f- feel weird for standing out, and that these things are wrong to di- to differentiate against someone um, for the sake of the color of their skin, which still happens. Then absolutely, go Doctor Who. It worked for me. I'm Doctor Tom. Go Doctor Who.
0: Tom, this is, oh I'm really gosh. sad we're in an audio format because I want to stand up and give you a standing ovation right now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as good. You're as, making okay, okay. me
0: tear up, man.
3: Oh
0: my gosh. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't, I
3: can't, can't freeform like Sarah Dollard, but that, but that's the point. It really is the point.
0: Well, if we have to wait that long for a speech like that from you, I think the wait was definitely worth it. <laughs> oh, man.
3: Um, but yeah, we should, we, should, we should stay with this, though. It's, okay, a like, different, different question. Is it right to punch a racist? I mean, that's the thing that people yeah. should be talking about.
2: Yeah. I, no, I kind of think he deserved it in that moment. Um, I mean, okay, just from a perspective, in-show perspective... It's clear that the Doctor is leading up to a moment like that because, frankly, you don't write dialogue for the Doctor and Bill like the scene that they have where he says, like, you can't talk, you have a temper, like, let me handle this, reason should win out. Like, of course he's setting up for him to go completely against that. Um, and Sarah Dollard has been doing that the entire episode. He says earlier, um, you know, I don't have time for outrage. He's trying to, like, take this virus. when outrage. Exactly. And it's like we know you you're not that kind of person we know that you like to be outraged and act on that so clearly like there's something coming so frankly like the the punch in that moment it's it's highly satisfying so like I feel like it was right for that moment whether or not violence is the answer all the time like well I would argue it's not the answer all the time but um Mm -hmm. I was I was right there with the doctor when
0: that happened Okay. So let's move into discussing some of the other things that we loved about this episode. Uh, I loved the historical setting for this. I thought they went above and beyond with creating the environment for the Frost Fair. Uh, Tom, I know mm. you'd have some interesting thoughts, though, about historical versus pseudo historical <laughs> Doctor Who episodes. Where do you think uh-huh. thin ice falls on that?
3: I, okay, the thing to look at here is, where do you draw the line? I mean, to me, something like um, the Highlanders is a historical. Something like the Massacre is a historical. Because in both cases, what you've got are um, historic events of, of significance, national and maybe even global significance, into which um, the TARDIS crew is uh, – which, which form the background for what the TARDIS, the TARDIS crew is doing at that particular time. Um the problem you've got is, are stories like maybe Black Orchid or more problematically, The Visitation, whereby you've got mm. these historical events, but there's a strong element of fantasy in them. So to me, I'm thinking that this is something which is set against the background of the, Victor- of the 1814 Frost Fair. not Victorian, Georgian, let's be clear about that, um, <laughs> Um, and so I, but it's got a very strong element of fantasy in it so I think, it's, I think it's a pseudo-historical in the same way as The Visitation is a pseudo-historical because it's, you know, there are historic events that are taking place but there's clearly a lot of fantasy inside there as well something like The Massacre is all about the Huguenot Massacre something like The Highlanders is about the Highland Clearances so th- th- that's a slightly different thing so I would say that this is a pseudo-historical what do you think?
2: I actually have to admit, I have not even given this a second thought. Um, I, and I saw a little bit of like the conversation about it. And I thought like, really, is that the thing we're thinking about with this? Because I'm on a whole different thing. Um, I mean, that being said, like, the fact is Regency England it just oh it just like hits all the right buttons for me i'm a huge jane austen uh, fan and oh. so i loved that they said it here i love the argument that because it doesn't have like a huge um important historical moment that we couldn't necessarily call it like a pure historical um i think that What's kind of clever, though, is that Sarah Dollard leaves the door open just enough that I think you really can make this this argument both ways. Um, There is nothing that definitively says that the creature is alien. It's Mm -hmm. very possible that um, if we believe uh, what Sutcliffe says, it's been there for ages, generations and generations, like so Mm -hmm. far back. He doesn't even remember how long it's been there. Uh, Like
3: a scarrison.
2: Exactly. And so I think that um, it's It's just ambiguous enough that we could have this argument, you know, for decades to come. Which is really like that's part of the fun of Doctor Who is getting to argue like, is this a pseudo-historical or is this a pure historical?
3: Is it okay? So this this is not quite as bad as unit dating, but to to be honest, (laughs) okay. So, but, but you're right, I suppose. You know, the frost fair is something that historically happened. And, but 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 I think my, my not my issue with it, but what I find f- kind of funny about it is that apparently the, fr- the the Thames was frosting up because of this giant lizard thing. Maybe it's a scarrison, Who knows? Underneath the Thames, um, you know. And, and I and I do get the f- and I'm sure that if there's someone doing uh, if there is, if there are key stage three students doing. Um, regency (laughs) some some wag might suggest that yes there's a giant lizard underneath the thames just before they get suspended
0: (laughs) (laughs) i did argument over historical pseudo historical aside i did love how much time and effort that they put into Mm. really creating the sense of the frost fair i watched the doctor who the after show um And, uh Haley Newbar came on to talk about the costumes and the sets that they'd built for this like that bridge they created something that was like four stories tall to be able mm-hmm. to create that scene of the frost Fair underneath on the Thames um cool. and the costumes I god I want Pearl Mackey's dress like <laughs> I want we that all whole want ensemble. that dress <laughs> oh. Oh, so,
3: so. But actually, do you know what? It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head. You know, we made a, we've made quite well. The show makes a uh, quite a feature of uh, of racism. Where are mm-hmm. the women in this? I mean, there, there was the little girl. There were a couple of little girls, but where were the women? Where were the women in this story?
2: Oh, I was just going to say, Tom. I think you said it. Like there are there are girls um, in the story, and that was one of the things that I thought was so great about mm. um, the the way that the um, Conflict is set up is that in the end you have these two young girls and this little boy so these really really vulnerable children who wow. are poor and hungry and it comes down to Bill's decision and the doctor says this is you know your people your planet this is your choice wow. um, but it's so powerful in that moment he's giving. This huge decision over to a black woman at this time, and yeah. leaving that decision up to her, and then going even further than that and saying, "Okay, we have solved the immediate problem of you know mm. this creature trapped under the the Thames, but let's also make sure that these kids are okay um, mm. and take care of them going forward." So I don't know that we necessarily needed more like. We didn't need the presence of more women. I don't know where that would have fit in, uh, but I did think it was significant that um, the the children were so young, and that the like the leader of that group was this young black girl.
0: I thought another thing that was uh, really well done about this was um, sort of uh, the background and the the build up of what Regency England would have looked like because they mm. did have a very good uh, supporting cast in this episode um, and it seemed to be a fairly uh, representative group of extras. Um, You know, it was evenly split. I saw equal amounts men and women milling around in the background um, and people represented of uh, various different races and ethnicities. You know, it really seemed to represent a cosmopolitan London, you know, and definitely a London of the times. It didn't... I thought that they did a good job of really creating an immersive background um, to the point that, you know, I I never felt that the story was in any way imbalanced in one side or the other because the setting that they created uh, was incredibly representative of just generally what the world is like. So that, that you know, I didn't really notice any imbalance, uh, particularly that. The real drivers of the story were two black women. Um, mm. You know, yeah, they yeah, were yeah, really yeah, driving yeah.
3: the plot. Yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you know? I think you're right. Maybe it's just maybe what it was was the story was just reflecting its times. For instance, when um, so you've got the three girls uh, and the doctor's trying to sign over the house, but we can't sign over to one. The 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 air can't be. Um, a young woman. It has to be. The, it has to be Peregrine. It has to be the boy. But uh, so maybe. Say so maybe what you. So are right. Perhaps it's just telling the story of its times. One other thing I'd, I'd like to ask, just just to be uh, just before we sort of run out of time, because um, mm-hmm. I want to get it in there. I thought this was a great episode for explaining what the companion is for. Because if we look at this, we've got this two thousand. Well, all the way through the history of the show, you've got this wise time traveling wizard figure. Um, Why on earth would he need to be hanging around with humans? Because if he's super evolved, why would he need to have like well, basically talking monkeys knocking around with him? But this this episode seems to show that. Well, look, I am super powerful. I am almost omnipotent. But here's the thing: I need to be traveling with a conscience. I think David. I think maybe the um, the tenth Doctor maybe addressed this a little bit as well when he said, "When you make the university backyard, you need to see it through different through a different." pair of eyes one of the great things about teaching anything that you love is when you show it to someone for the first time and they see it you get to see it in a new way um mm-hmm. so it was really so it was really interesting to see the doctor really turn this over to bill and saying right okay so what do you want to do i can do anything i want to but that's not where the fun is that's not the, I, that's no that's no use to me i can do what i like you tell me what to do you give me the order i really like that because it, it's again it seems to explain well, why would the doctor hang around with humans at all
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't teach, but I have lots of young children in my family. And I think, you know, one of one of the greatest things is to see them experience new things uh, that I love um, and get to see it through different eyes and also their sense of wonder because you know they're still young enough that uh, the world is still very magical to them and it you know you get a renewed sense of wonder whenever you introduce something to them Uh, I showed a picture uh, to my four year old baby cousin of myself with Peter Capaldi in costume and she was (laughs) absolutely wide eyed she's like you're with the doctor how did you do that (laughs) so that (laughs) That was pretty great i do love those moments with kids wicked
2: yeah That, that moment too is really great with the doctor and bill because you know he's leaving the decision up to her but he's doing it because he trusts her and all he has to do is get that one last line in there where he says i know that you won't want your future to be built on the suffering of this creature and that's it they they trust each other and they know each other so well at this point that he knows she won't want that and kind of already knows what her decision is but in telling her this is your choice he's allowing her to just have that moment to think through it and to be the one who makes that final decision
3: you've just remarked you know you've just hit you just linked two things what does Sutcliffe call Bill when he sees her
2: Creature. Yeah. No, this is that was totally deliberate. Like Sarah Dollar knows what she's doing. The fact right. is, is that that thing under the, the ground is enslaved. And this if you think this wasn't an episode right. about systemic oppression based on race and class, like I don't know what show you were watching.
3: <laughs> No, I, no, right. I, abso- I, I absolutely do, and I think it's, I, I think it's a good thing. I, well, I don't think, I don't think it's being patronising. I think it's good to draw out or to tease out these these analogs because I think that you know, that's what the show's trying to do. You know, yeah. In, in, yeah. In, in the same way for instance, as Vincent in the Doctor is is a so, is a show about mental is a story about mental illness. This is a story about slavery. This is Doctor Who doing what it does best.
0: Well, it's, it's an interesting thing because Doctor Who has so many analogies and metaphors. And this is an episode that does analogy and metaphor, but also makes it very explicit. Mm-hmm. You know, let's not just talk about racism in the context of aliens and creatures and metaphors and prosthetics. You know, let's let's pull the racist out behind the rubber mask and say, like, no, this is straight up what we're talking about here mm-hmm. um, and make make those uh, themes of oppression uh very explicit and linked to our real world. So we are running close on time here. So I'm just going to give you both a few more minutes um, and to just bring in those last few things, the last little details that you loved about this episode that you wanted to mention.
2: Well, I'll go first and just say that Bill's dialogue and actually all the dialogue in general was so, so perfect. She says she's low-key in love with the TARDIS. And <laughs> I have to be honest, I work with teenagers and I only just found out what low-key means like two months ago. And so I was super excited to hear and think, oh my gosh, I know what she's saying. But it also signaled to me like, oh, Sarah Dollar knows what she's talking about she is completely authentic and then the, it's just a running theme i mean peter capaldi trying to you know use slang is probably the most hilarious thing when he says he's down with the kids like <laughs> I, I just i can't think of anything funnier um so i just i loved all of the the banter back and forth you know he he has specially chosen tea clothes like it, not everything was just perfect <laughs>
3: um big up to nicholas burns i think uh, clearly well not clearly one of the things i hear from actors and we see in interviews is that it's great to play a baddie because you don't have to be you don't have to have any dimensions to you you can just be out and out <laughs> awful um but i thought nicholas burns did a great job as Sutcliffe because he was utterly hateable utterly hateable um yes. but, in a, but, but in a wonderful but in a, but in a great way you know so he sat there dressed like wellington or just uh, like wellington or napoleon Eating the grapes, um, beautiful dialogue, great actor, really burning with Peter Capaldi. So, yeah, you know, it's, it seems to me that we've all enjoyed the episode. So, I do want to give um, Nicholas Burns a big, a big up uh, because he was, <laughs> because, because he was, he was just particularly good as Sutcliffe. Really, really great.
0: All right, thank you guys so much for joining us uh, for our discussion. Thanks
1: a lot. Glad to be here. Hey, here's what's happening this week on the Incomparable Network. Incomparable panelists play a game that is totally not Family Feud. I mean it. It's not Family Feud, really. It's actually based on the surveys of the supporting members of the podcast network. We love our listeners. That's on the Game Show podcast.
0: And on the main podcast, the team looks at Sci-Fi's The Magicians series, both with and without spoilers.
1: All this and more at TheIncomparable.com.
0: Next week, Chip and I will be back to discuss Episode 4 of Series 10, Knock Knock.
1: Really, it's just that simple. We're adding another member of the Pop Culture Happy Hour family to our collection. We had Petra Mayer join us a while back to talk about an episode. This time, we've got Glenn Weldon aboard. He's a regular host of Pop Culture Happy Hour and a writer for NPR. And his recent book, The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture, gave me a thought. Where does Doctor Who fit in American nerd culture? Uh, well,
4: nerd culture, I guess, is something that has uh, arisen in this country over the past few decades. And what matters is not what the object of one's affection is, what matters is how one uh, one exhibits that affection. It is, uh, the nerdery is uh, deep, it is passionate, it is also, crucially, uh, not jealous, not exclusive. It is inclusive. It is about saying, I love this thing, and I want to share it with you uh, because I, I want you to love it as much as I do. I hope that you love it as much as I do. Yeah, I will often be disappointed, but I will keep plugging away anyway. Ah. Uh, it, it's important that it's not hipsterism, right? It's important that it's not, I love this thing, and you don't love it enough. Or you don't love it in the right way. Uh, that is the, there is a spectrum of nerdery. And on one end of it is a kind of toxic, fanboyish, and it's usually fanboyish, uh, nerdery that that strives to use it as hipsterism. Tries to make one's passions her thing uh, exclusive and uh, toxic, uh, destructive.
1: So... Does Doctor Who in America, and we're, we're pretty much concentrating on American pop culture or in nerd culture here. Mm-hmm. Um, Doctor Who's been showing up in Hot Topic for years. Uh, you and your colleagues at Pop Culture Happy Hour have been talking about it every once in a while. Uh, Petra Mayer is, of course, a big fan. On Reality Bomb, the uh, podcast by my friend Graham Burke, uh, Mm -hmm. you outed yourself as somebody familiar with Black Orchid. Oh yeah. So you've got so you've got your Doctor Who bona bona fides there. But um, where does Doctor Who seem to fit into pop culture and nerd culture these days? Is it waxing? Is it waning?
4: Uh, I think it's holding steady. I think any time a new doctor comes along, you will get mainstream articles. uh, But they will be mostly of the head-scratching variety uh, because the Doctor Who is a quintessentially British property. It is a British concept, and it is uh, shot through with a British sensibility. And when it comes over to the States, uh, and it's encountered for the first time by people, uh, what matters is, uh, I think they have to be kids. I, I'm just saying. I'm going by. This is an anecdote here, right? This is anecdotal purely. But whenever I have tried to interest any adult in the show, any iteration of the show, old who, new who, uh, it doesn't take. Because I think in America we don't have this. I mean, I, I, I certainly have this relationship. I go back, uh, you know, when to a uh, Tom Baker era. But uh, in in in. Great Britain, it is ubiquitous. It is a common shared experience. There is a, the, all those famous stories about people hiding behind couches as kids. It's a show that's, that exists as part of the your very existence, part of the weft and war, warp and whooped, whatever you want to say. Uh, and. It crucially is seen an originally as sort of a creature feature, sort of a horror show. It's it's something scary because if you encounter it as a kid, it has a very uh, important, powerful effect on you. It, it's a trauma that you, you spend your rest of your life trying to get over. Uh, I don't have that kind of experience with it, and I think few Americans do because uh, most nerds uh, who love Doctor Who encountered it, not as very young kids, but as teenagers, when they're trying to find something, trying to create an identity about themselves, trying to figure out what they like and what they don't. And their relationship to it is seems to be more one more an intellectual one, not a pure emotional. And I think that might be the difference here because Brits as a species are not a deeply emotional people. Americans as a species are. And uh, our relationship to the show is different in in Great Britain it takes these uh, people who tend to intellectualize and and uh, distance themselves from their from their emotions it it reaches them when they're very young grabs them and because they're kids and i think mostly in, in the us it's it's a more an intellectual property it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's something that isn't quite science fiction that isn't quite uh, family it's 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 kind of caught in the middle it's hard for americans to categorize
1: do you think that might have changed a little bit uh, when the show was revived in 2005 and Russell T. Davis was very much taking the old Doctor Who model and grabbing a hefty chunk of Buffy the Vampire Slayer here and there?
4: Absolutely. I mean, it, there was always quips, uh, and but crucially, the format changed. I think not having... Not spending three hours at a time, because again, uh, in America, at least in, in my local station, they didn't show individual episodes; they showed all arcs, just kind of to jammed together. So you could spend up up to three hours just staring at your TV. Um, I think it did to a certain extent, but there is this essential thing about the show, not just its Britishness, but its cheesiness. There is a, a very loving cheese factor to this. Even when the special effects are great, they are great for British television, <laughs> which is not quite the same as great for, for, for US television, for a variety of reasons. But And that's always been, when I have tried, and I have tried to show uh, my friends and colleagues uh, some of the some of the the big episodes, the ones you always do, every, you show everybody blink, you show everybody, you know, the the, the ooh, sh- like it's anything you anything I do, they come up against this this factor that like that's a dude in a mask, uh, that looks cheesy, that looks fake, uh, and I grew up with the show, right? I grew up where uh, the aliens look like they were made out of styrofoam, and that is part of the show's charm to me, and you know I, I've talked before about the episode. Uh, the Van Gogh episode, where uh, they fight this invisible, it's important, because... <laughs> because budgets. <laughs> because budgets, so you have people shoving a pitchfork in the air to kind of defend against the monster. Uh, that's like, what, was it a space turkey? And so when we did see it, it was, um, you know, it's, I, I it, it's a meant to be. It's meant to kind of ride that edge of cheesiness. And uh, if you have a, a fondness for the show that goes deep, as I do, uh, you not only give it, a, give it a pass, but you actually look for that. You embrace it.
1: The show was also created initially uh, for, as, as children's, it wasn't created by the children's department, it was created by the BBC's drama department, but it was aimed at family audiences. I can't think of another, of an American sci-fi property over the last decade or so that actually was made for family audiences. Is, th- is, is that a big difference here as well?
4: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think you could, somebody would argue with you that Star Wars uh, and Star Trek to to a certain extent are Mm -hmm. made for family audiences because they are, uh, and that that I think is mostly affected the fact that they're so mainstream, they're so ubiquitous that, you know, people are going to drag their kids to see them uh, no matter what, but, because, I mean, there's few uh, hard R <laughs> science fiction things over here. It used to be, but they're they're less so less, less so now. I mean, I guess aliens, of course, and, and horror kind of stuff like that. But I don't know. the The thing that always struck me about the show is that if my parents were nerds, uh, they would watch it with me. My parents are not. They're jocks, and and uh, my mom was a cheerleader, so they didn't get it. Um, and in in the UK, it's just a fundamentally different thing. It is a thing that that families sit down together to watch. Uh, and uh, it's 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 just it's but it is so quintessentially British uh, that it's it's uh, there there is something that's always going to seem there there is always going to be a a, a a gap that needs to be bridged and uh, it, it will find willing recipients and it will find um, will find people who just keep it at a distance. When the show came back recently, one of them one of the new doctors, there was this whole BBC America. And I think the BBC did this whole special, but it was a BBC America special. And um, they got a lot of fans, you know, contemporary fans of the show uh, who were celebrities or, you know, small C celebrities to talk about their love of the show. And that's when I saw, oh, I get what's going on here. All of these people they're bringing in to do Talking Heads are um, celebrity nerds uh, who are, you know, who are on some of my favorite comedy podcasts. Uh, That's that's this. That's the that's the market here. It's not very young kids, and it's not families over here. It is it's it's nerds and uh, self described nerd, nerds, self possessed nerds. You know, I I could listen to Paul F. Tompkins talk about uh, Doctor Who without without a trace of irony, right? With just a sincere love of of the show, uh, and that, that was that was a that was a, a light bulb moment for me. Something I, I kind of understood something about the appeal of the show then.
1: So Doctor Who is niche te- television and destined to stay that way in the US do you think?
4: I don't know uh, I think every time they, a new doctor comes along there's a chance for more people it, it will always be a tough sell in part because and here I'm going to go old man on you, uh, in New Who I find it sometimes hard to hear the words, not not just to understand the words but to hear them the sound mixing so favors uh, loud noises and this Blanketed wall-to-wall music that's constantly crescendoing. Um, that uh, when you have somebody speaking in a very thick London accent, very quickly, uh, I, I tend to I tend to miss a lot of stuff. So, but that's always going to be a, a part of the thing. That's what I, I like about it. There is, you know, as long as it is a show about mansplaining, uh, which which it is, uh, and and has always been. Uh, it's going to it's there's going to be some people who, who kind of uh, run up against it. But again, it is the uh, sort of pop culture Marmite. You know, you need to be exposed to it when young for you to get it. And if you aren't, it's going it, to it, it's going to take unusual, uh, unusual steps to get you to kind of lock, lock key into it.
1: There is the possibility that. Uh Come the next series of the show under a new showrunner and a new actor playing the Doctor, that it may turn into a show uh, about woman's blading.
4: Yeah, that'd be that would be great. I think it's about time. Uh, it can't lose its Britishness. You can you can do anything. Uh, you you can put any actor or actress in there, but there is absolutely no reason. Now for it to be another white dude, um, we've done the white dude thing. Uh, we've we've seen it a lot, and in a world where there's Dev Patel and, uh, for for that matter, uh, Tilda Swinton, oh man, I want a Tilda Swinton doctor. Uh, it, it's it's just not. It's that is the thing that might actually allow, allow it to break through because I think people take one look at this man. Uh, with, a, with a, a, a companion, a female companion that he's explaining things to and they think, okay, I've seen this before uh, and I, I think that the show needs to do something to kind of shake it out, out of that particular format, that particular formula for it to get um, to, for, just to open up the, the, the possibilities, just to shake up the dynamic a little bit, never mind who'd watch and who wouldn't watch, I think it would just be interesting for the show.
1: The show's been around since 1963, uh, minus a couple of uh, significant hiatus. Well, one big hiatus and Mm -hmm. one uh, TV movie with Paul McGann uh, spiking it in the middle. But um, do you think that the show has enough legs that it is going to survive as a nerd property or not uh, for the foreseeable? Or do you see it drifting away?
4: I don't know. I mean, I I certainly would take another look at it uh, if they do go and do something interesting with uh, the actor who plays the new doctor. Um, I I think that that would that gives it uh, a l- little bit of a push. Just not not so much. Just forget about uh, culturally or in terms of audience, but in terms of narratively, I think it 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 will give the show a little bit of um, life that it. it it may have. That said, I have never walked away from an episode of Doctor Who uh, disappointed. I, I admire what you guys do, where you look at this and you think about this critically. It is so much a part of my DNA that I I have I, I always come away from the show thinking, well, that was it. That was good. Uh, I have you know I have obviously noticed show episodes that are particularly good, but I just don't. I just it's it. I go to it for a certain thing, which is for it to hit certain beats to, 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 for me to see the TARDIS. And as soon as that happens, I just, you know, I, I just, this is the thing maybe because I'm, uh, I, I, I do so much criticism, uh, in other parts of my life. I like to keep this one part, uh, sacrosanct and I don't, I don't pick it apart. It's, I, I just, I just, I'm grateful for it. And I always will be, but again, if, if it's looking for a bigger audience, I, I do think it does needs to shake things up.
1: And the last question for you, Glenn. It's a very, very simple one. What is your favorite episode of the show?
4: Uh, my favorite episode. Uh, I, you know, I, I liked. Uh, I don't know where. I don't even know where this falls. But I mean, I, obviously, Blink and you know all, all the stuff with the Master. I, that that's all great. But the one that I like that I don't see a lot of people talking about. And in fact, if I do see them talking about it, it's uh, it, it's to disparage it is the Satan Pit. <laughs>
1: I, w- I would not allow anybody to disparage the Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit in my yeah, yeah. presence.
4: Yeah, I, I just think that's really incredibly good storytelling that ends with this incredible reveal that this is basically the devil who's been stuck inside a planet, and that he this is you know and, and there is a sense of foreboding that that episode really, uh, conjures, uh, and I, you know, I, I basically, uh, it was that a Donna episode. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, no.
1: no, it was, uh, it was a Rose episode last okay. one they filmed of her.
4: Oh, okay. All right. Well, I, I should say that it's that, um, I should say that some episode with Donna, maybe turn left is, is my favorite because Donna is just my favorite companion, uh, of all time. And, uh, and I just, I just love what, what, I love that relationship and I love, what she brought, and I love that uh, they got into a kind of a, that they built a tenderness around uh, her that wasn't based on romance, it was based on something else, something even arguably deeper, Uh, but I I really dug uh, the Donna episodes.
1: Glenn Weldon from National Public Radio's Pop Culture Happy Hour and a writer for NPR, thank you so much.
4: Thanks, Chip, this is great.
0: Finally, Chip wanted to put on his two-minute Time Lord hat and answer a question that seemed more simple on its face than it turned out to be.
1: The other day, someone asked me why I was such a Doctor Who fan, and I started to reel off all the geek cliches before she stopped me and said, no, there's so much else you could be a geek over. Why do you spend so much time on Doctor Who and not something else? And she had a point. I mean, I'll talk your head off about Babylon 5 or Netflix's Voltron Legendary Defender or what's gone wrong with superhero comics since the mid-2000s, but Doctor Who is something that I'm all in on. And there's gotta be a reason I'm podcasting about it and not Star Wars or anything else I love. I've said before on Two Minute Time, Lord, that Doctor Who is the ultimate Rorschach test for viewers. Because it's been reinvented so many times, fans tend to see what they want to in the show. Occasionally, that takes a pretty weird turn, as when one fan this week was surprised and distressed to discover that the Doctor might be anti-racist. It's really common, however, for fans to read the show differently and disagree with or misunderstand each other's readings because Doctor Who has no canon and can't confine itself to a single storytelling genre. No canon. No genre. No limits. And it hit me that this is the reason that I'm so invested in Doctor Who. When I was a teenager, the role-playing games I played with my friends were a mix-and-match combination of Marvel superheroes, Robotech, Battletech, Car Wars, and other gaming systems and universes, all bolted together with wish-fulfillment. Our characters were time and space and parallel universe travelers who were part of a vastly incoherent, epic story, and they, and we, shifted settings whenever we got bored. Many years later, I'm wrapped up in the stories of a constantly changing hero who never stays in the same place too long, even when he's supposed to be guarding a mysterious vault. At the risk of too much self-indulgent self-disclosure, These days, the idea of reinventing myself is seriously appealing. I'm tired of being constrained by old notions of who I am, notions that may not work for me as well as they used to. I'm tired of regrets over an unchangeable past or the limitations of geography. I want to live without limits. And here's a character and a show that are tailor-made for that fantasy. I, of course, cannot become the doctor. I don't have multiple hearts, I don't have a TARDIS, I don't have a contract that allows me to be played by a series of actors. So my challenge in watching and loving Doctor Who is in finding the sweet spot between resenting my current life because it's not sufficiently like the Doctor's world, or losing myself in the fantasy while neglecting my real-world time and space-bound responsibilities. That sweet spot in the middle It's the space in the story where I can take lessons from the Doctor, and Doctor Who, and apply them to who I really am. I'm attached to this terrestrial ball and the people around me more than the Doctor, and that's really a very good thing. But maybe, thanks to Doctor Who, I can let myself see that I am more free than I behave, and that this world is more expansive and holds more opportunities than I allow myself to believe. As the doctor says in the series premiere, time and relative dimension in space. It's called life.
0: Thank you for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're also lurking about on Twitter. You can find us at Doctor Who This Week, no punctuation. You can find Chip on Twitter at Numeral Two Minute Time Lord. You can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And we're on Facebook too.
1: Thanks to Jason Snell for hosting us on the network. Thanks to Christopher Breen for writing our theme music and producing it too. And thanks to David J. Lohr for our podcast logo and a truly excellent beard. We'll be seeing you next week on This Week in Time Travel.
0: Bye-bye.